Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And this is episode 7. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw critical analysis of law, current events, and personal politics. On this episode, on our current events segment, we'll be talking about the domestic terrorism in the name of white supremacy. For deep thoughts, we'll get into accountability in its full range, from necessary to its toxic cousins. And for our case, this week we're going to talk about Korematsu versus United States, the case that deemed the internment of Japanese Americans legal. We quickly wanted to say thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Because of you all, we've been able to buy pop filters, which if some of you who've been listening since our first episodes have noticed, the sound quality has gotten a lot better as a result. And we've also been able to order stickers, which are really cute with our logo, which we can send to our listeners too. And we're looking for other ways to continually improve our show. So if you all want to show support, that'd be really great. Okay, for our current event, Yvette, do you just want to, in case anybody's depending on us for their breaking news, do you want to talk about what happened in Virginia this weekend? Yeah, and hopefully you're not relying on us for your breaking news, and hopefully you have read about this already. But just in case, there was the largest white supremacist gathering in a decade in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was called Unite the Right because... The alt-right isn't actually like a unified ideology. It's factions of different groups who, in different ways, believe in white supremacy as an ideology. And it happened this past weekend. So, Cynthia, I just wanted to check in with you and ask how you're feeling. What are you processing after this weekend? So, I think, like, and I don't think I'm alone in this. I think... I just keep seeing the video of the car in my head just like over and over. And like I know hate exists. I hate like from of that magnitude and I've seen it like manifest itself in different ways. But this was something else for me. Uh It was like time for me to look up how to buy a gun different. And it's just making me think about like when terrorism has happened abroad. And like realizing like none of that has ever hit me the way that hit me. It's just, it is also making me think about how I need to widen and deepen my empathy because that video, like, I can't stop seeing it in my head. What about you, Yvette? How are you feeling? I noticed this morning that like walking to work and just like some random white people walking past me made me anxious because I was like, are you are you a premises and yes and actually what was really scary to me was that there one of the people who was at the rally lives in berkeley i don't know if he lives yeah. in yeah i don't know if he lives in berkeley but he worked at top dog which is actually one of my favorite establishments in berkeley i might have bought a hot dog while he was working there they're everywhere yeah right even in our you know quote-unquote progressive haven of the bay area and berkeley in particular and, and like, even if I w- the, pr- the people I was walking past weren't explicit, outright white supremacists like the ones that we saw in Charlottesville, I was still mad because I was like, you're most likely one of those people who didn't call in their family members and their friends, didn't call in their people, and you are part of the problem as well. So I'm like, 
anxious and mad. And I have data points to back this up. Like personal, <laughs> personal experiences of mine. Like the night of the election, I ended up going to this watch party that was supposed to be a celebratory party, but ended up being like people getting too drunk and crying. And one woman shared that she found out that evening that her parents had voted for Trump. And I found that to be such a disingenuous statement because even if you didn't know that your parents literally walked and cast a ballot to vote for Trump, if you know anything about your parents, then you would know that they have an ideology that's aligned with Trump's racism. And it made me really uncomfortable that this woman who like postures herself as a liberal on campus and gets to participate in all these elite thoughtful discussions from people on the left and they get to think of herself as being in that world then also gets to go home and experience love from these people who are racist and doesn't have to deal with any kind of discomfort in calling them out and meanwhile as a latina woman i live my life uncomfortably every day people make me uncomfortable every day in different ways and this privileged white woman who goes to Stanford Law is unwilling to talk to her own parents. If there's anyone that's going to change her parents' opinion, it's this woman. It's her, ch- like, their child. So just generally feeling resentment. Yeah. In terms of, like, what you first said, I, so as, like, I'm still in the South right now for my internship in North Carolina, and I've definitely been feeling less safe out here. My My roommate's gone, so that's adding to it, but I agree with you that like I'm constantly feeling unsafe and for people not to even bother having this these conversations with their roommate like is I can see why you're resentful yeah well there have been some people that have been trying to converse and speak out about this all of a sudden like mainstream republicans (laughs) what are your thoughts on that like do you believe them (laughs) so it feels like the republicans feel like this crossed the line and like I feel like they're acting that way and I know it it actually like didn't because there are neo-nazis in the administration right and like yeah like several politicians did surprise me with their reactions and with like how quickly they responded like Mike Pence and stuff and like people keep like lauding him about it but it was so surprising because it'd been a while since I'd heard republicans you know denounce white supremacy but at the same time like I definitely feel like we can't fall for that act like it's dangerous to like be so proud of them or or not even I guess not even proud proud's not the right word but just like be like praising them or be like happy and pleased that they spoke out against white supremacy because it's like rewriting the, the history of what they do what like their actions actually are like it's giving them the space where they can denounce this rally and the KKK but then they go right back to passing racist ass policies and rewriting our history Yeah, I just, I don't believe the Republican Party for a second when they say things like, this is not our party. Like, actually, this is exactly your party. Currently, the Republicans are trying to gerrymander counties in Indiana to make sure that it doesn't go blue again. You know, this is what your party's about, but it's a bad, it's like bad for PR for you to say that you're explicitly white supremacist. It's only okay if you do it in dog whistle coded language and like I just think that we like when someone shows you who they are you should believe them the Republicans have shown us in so many different ways that they're a racist white supremacist party and we should 
believe them based on their past actions. How Donald Trump, you know, came out with a set of remarks that were a bit more, that chastised white supremacists a bit more. But then, like, the next morning, retweeted a white supremacist. And, yeah, you know, like... Like, did you hear about the tweet that he did about it was like a cartoon of a man wearing cnn like a cnn head or something like was run over by a train and then he deleted it that <laughs> that's so disgusting I, I i i'm shocked at how insensitive that is a day or two after a woman was run over by a car like yeah. Is your feud with CNN that important that you it's like you need to be insensitive about a tragedy? Yeah, no. So they've definitely like like I keep hearing this quote and I had never heard this quote before until now. And like all these people and like mainstream media have been pulling out the quote. So there's this like presidential candidate for like the Republican Party from the 1996 Bob Dole. And his quote has been going around and it's just kind of like really stayed with me because of all the reasons like of what we just talked to talked about. So I'll just read it and like just imagine you're like a Republican and like a big convention center. Your presidential candidate gets up there and like says this. But if there's anyone who has mistakenly attached themselves to our party in the belief that we are not open to citizens of every race and religion, then let me remind you, tonight this hall belongs to the party of Lincoln, and the exits, which are clearly marked, are for you to walk out of as I stand this ground without compromise. That would be so moving, but I feel like it's so fake. Don't try to act like you're for equality or that you're not like white supremacists. Yeah, I my reaction to that is that I think it's really funny that they the Republicans love talking about Lincoln as proof that they're not a racist party because Lincoln gets too much credit. He has this reputation because he wrote the emancipation the Emancipation Proclamation because it was under his administration that the Thirteenth Amendment was passed, but. Lincoln didn't care about freeing the slaves like that was not his agenda his agenda was to keep the union intact and he was oscillating between whether or not to support slavery or to support its abolition and he ultimately came down the way that he did because he felt like that was what was best to preserve the union but if the north had been down to preserve slavery then he would have been down also so wait but let's not like also a lot of the north was down to preserve slavery like no yeah thousands of yeah. people in new york were injured when pro-slavers rioted and like hurt a bunch of people and like killed some black people in new york so let's not like also forget that the north and the west coast are also racist as hell no that's real yeah and we i shouldn't be surprised that there was a white supremacist working at top dog in berkeley like this is not a progressive haven. There's so many flaws here. Yeah. So in that vein, Yvette, okay, so one of the most terrifying images that I saw was militiamen showing up early with all their guns. And like, first of all, like, who the fuck knew we had militiamen? Like, what the fuck are they even? Like, what are they for? But like, they are a thing, right? And they have guns and they were like very willing to use them, I feel. And so I'm like just feeling like should we buy guns like i mentioned earlier like i feel like i'm at that point like i need to go buy myself a gun with a permit and all that shit 
Yeah, I know we've talked about this before, and I've mentioned the there's a black owned shooting range in the Bay Area that I've been wanting to go to, and I think for me this is a question of garnering skills that are going to be useful in the event of a revolution because it's I like we're both in a really complicated space of being lawyers but also dreaming of an alternate future of collective liberation and so but it's like hard to live your day to day with holding both of those things in tension and I think it's important to foster skills, the skills that you would need should a revolution happen, even just to like psychologically remind yourself of what your priorities are. Because like right now, if there, if a revolution were to happen, like my main skill set would be looking up cases on Westlaw and writing <laughs> a really good brief. And that is not going to get me anywhere, you know? And like, so like for me, like, even if I'm not going to buy a gun, going to a shooting range, learning how to shoot one or like learning how to garden, learning how to grow my own food, even like moving more towards communal living. Those are skills that those are the skills that I want to foster, too, even if just to remind myself of like what I'm what I'm invested in. Yeah, no, I feel you. I my dad's an electrician and I asked him the other day if he could teach me how to like possibly to a solar panel and he just laughed at me he's like it's so complicated and I was like well fuck there goes my plan for survival <laughs> and like I'm not so okay I'm not comfortable with the idea of like owning a gun or buying a gun or you know like feeding into this paramilitaristic society that we have or sometimes straight out militaristic yeah but like, I don't want to add violence to the world. I want to heal. I want to be in the space of a healer and help heal, right? But at the same time, like, I don't want to be shot down, you know? If militiamen were ever to, like, roll into a town where I'm living in, like, I don't want to be, oh, shit, like, lock my doors and stay in. Like, I want to meet them. Like, not let them know. feel like, oh, yeah, you're just going to take over. There's no one resisting you. Like, no, there are people resisting you. I'm, like, thinking about that quote, right? Like, when they go low, we go high. Yeah, that's all good and well, except I'm not going to go high if that makes me, like, the fucking bird in the sky that gets shot down. So, I don't know. Like, I one, I am going to go to the shooting range with you. But I am also definitely looking into, like, owning a gun because I'm not going to get shot down on the street. That's not going to be me. Yeah, I just think that the people who are advocating that love, Trump, hate are in usually in a privileged position to be able to ignore all of the really real violence that's occurring. Someone was run over by a car and yeah. 19 people were really seriously injured. We live in a violent world already and I think that everyone has a right to self-defense. And Yeah, the like, dean of students... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead. go ahead. The dean of students at UVA, someone threw a tiki torch at him and like cut his arm some other administrator from UVA literally took the students who were on campus, who were back on campus in that area. He was hiding them out in a basement, locked doors. That's like, that's how terrified they were. And it's just like, that's like, sometimes that's necessary, but yeah, no, like it, the violence is happening and they're the, they know they're the ones with guns. They know we're against gun, like violence and guns, 
and they don't give a fuck like they have theirs yeah that reminds me of that meme that you were telling me about a while ago i don't know if you remember but i'm gonna look for it and i'm gonna post it yeah so keep an eye out for that do you want to describe it yeah so it was like a meme with two images on top of each other and the top one said like this is what uh, like clinton supporters look like and it was like a bunch of like peace-loving hippies like white people and stuff college educated seeming and then the bottom image was like and this are these are trump supporters and it was like a bunch of like what you would imagine like rednecks with like uh what is that cameo camo uh, clothing and they had like big hunting guns and then like the bottom it said do they really want this to get violent this was coming from like a trump supporting account and i was just like wow like they they know this they're like ready to shoot us down it's scary do you want to talk about airbnb and their their good deed of the day yeah so we just wanted to wrap up the segment and shout out airbnb for canceling the accounts of people who were linked to the rally and i can't speak to the rest of airbnb's policies or ethics but i am glad that they took this stand and like let go of some profit for the sake of some ethics so shout out you like good good job yeah i just think that move is important because i don't think white supremacists should be hosting anybody and i don't think that they should be staying in people's homes either like that's unsafe situation so i'm happy that they did that all right so accountability First off, Yvette, what do we mean by accountability? For me, accountability is about how we deal with the aftermath of someone doing harm to another person. And it's about figuring out how when harm is done, we can heal. And I think accountability is different than punishment because I think accountability is just like It's about recognizing harmful behaviors and attitudes and ideologies and trying to help that person grow to avoid that type of harm in the future. Whereas I think punishment is just, it's about making someone feel bad. It's about pushing the harm that someone did onto someone else back onto them. And I think those two things are different. But... Why do you think that accountability is important? Like, why are we talking about this? Well, off like kind of what you were saying, I think it's crucial for change. You know, whether it's your own or someone you love or someone who's just being harmful, I think accountability pushes you to grow beyond wherever you're at. Also, I just don't feel like we do this enough. We're all willing to report shit on Twitter or like pull, like put the bold status on Facebook. Like, oh, that pisses me off so much. especially when those people are hardly taking the real life opportunities to like live it out right so i have two examples from real life so one like this white woman who i'm friends with and i really like her she's very liberal and i've been like i just really get along with her and the other day we were having a conversation and she was she had just gotten her hair done and she she was telling me this was right after the trans um, military ban that trump did and she was talking about how she was there like with bleach in her hair sitting with her hairdresser And the hairdresser started saying, like, transphobic stuff. And she was shocked. Like, she doesn't agree at all. But she didn't say anything. She just said, like, she just, like, kind of, like, went on with the conversation in a different direction and didn't say anything about it. Just kind of, like, just listened. And then, like, 
as she was telling me the story, like she was like, oh, but you know, she's a lovely person. Like she's a lovely girl. I love her. She does my hair all the time. And then I must have like given her a look or said something. I can't remember what, but I remember her being like, I had, she was doing my hair. I had bleach in my hair. I wasn't going to say anything like, and then she looked at me and she was like, would you have said something? And I was just like, yes, yes, I, I would have, you know, like, and cause she's a white woman and I know like white women love Emma Watson. I was just like, like Emma Watson said, if not you, who? If not now, when? And just try to make a joke of it and be like, you know, like we just have to call people out on this and like let them know that we disagree so that they don't think like you agree with them and to let them know that you disagree with them. And so we just like, we just kind of left it at that. But yeah, there was like that moment where she's like, where you have done something differently. And I was just like, yes, I would have. I do. I do tell people when they do this stuff. I I love that you pointed to Emma Watson as your data point because I just think that's so brilliant and I think you're so right that's like you know leftist white woman like liberal white woman stand for her so (laughs) it's really good but I also I also like this story because I think it's really telling that your friend felt the need to point out to you like oh no but she's a lovely person like she's transphobic but she's a lovely person and I think that we don't realize that that logic undergirds our prison system like there's good people and there's bad people and the bad people are the ones Mm -hmm. in prison and that's Mm -hmm. and that's why we that's why we don't see them that's why we isolate them from us because those are bad people and they need to be punished and so it, that's why people get so offended when you're if when you're trying to call someone in, when you're trying to point out the ways in which someone's being harmful, it, like the defensive reaction is like, no, I'm a good person. And we need to have a more nuanced understanding of harm and humanity because you can you can be transphobic and be a really great hairdresser. you can be transphobic and be a really good friend to your cis people you know like and so i i I, it's hard to address all these things in one conversation but it's we have to start somewhere yeah no i agree with you like we are complicated people that's why i don't say the word criminal it's like there's no such thing as a criminal there are people who commit crimes because the law has said that's a crime, but there's no such thing as like a criminal. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, oh, which like takes me to this other example. Actually, perfect. So another good friend of mine was recently telling me that her sister was assaulted like on the street. Like this man um, who's experiencing homelessness, like she could tell, grabbed her ass. Like she was walking out of somewhere and he like grabbed her ass. And clearly she was, you know, very upset about this. She felt very, like, violated, which she, like, has every right to do. And they were actually, like, near a police station. So she went and, like, reported it and, but, like, had it, like, press charges or something. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not quite clear on what happened. But she, like, went and talked to, like, the police about it. And, like, they knew who he was because, like, he was someone who was on parole and was, like, homeless at the time. And he had failed to check in with his parole officer so there was like already a warrant out for his arrest because that was a parole violation and so yeah and so my friend was telling me about this and then like a couple days later I checked it back in with her because like at that moment she just needed my support and and I knew that but then like I followed up with her a couple days later and I was just like hey like 
have you talked to your sister about whether she's going to press charges and stuff? Because, like, my friend, she's very, like, very, very, like, radical, very, like, prison abolitionist and all this. And she was like, I don't know. That's what I've been thinking about. And I haven't. I don't feel like I can. You know, like, she's very, like, upset by it. And I was like, no, I get that. And I was just like, but maybe, you know, maybe you want to, you can ask her, like, hey, is having this man, like, further punished because he was already going to be incarcerated because of the parole violation but even if he wasn't right let's pretend he wasn't is having this man incarcerated and like in this punitive system when he it seemed like he had some uh, mental health issues that weren't being addressed like is his incarceration necessary for your healing and I just pitched it to her like that because she was very like uneasy about talking to her sister about this but I was telling her like yo it's your sister if you're not comfortable talking to your sister about this Mm -hmm. like then how can any of us like expect to end mass incarceration you know like it's I like can't go up to people randomly on the street and be like hey like don't press charges on people when you don't need to like if even like this is when it happens like when it when our family members are like victims of some crime like you know so I don't know I feel like phrasing it in her in terms of her healing is important but I still think like it's a conversation worth having yeah I I think I like the story too because it brings out all these questions about why someone wants to press charges because would it you know does it help with your healing and I'm I'm not going to speak for survivors because I think that people can want different remedies for that but It's important to ask because I think because of the fact that the only kind of justice model that we have is a punitive one, I think we kind of instinctively think something happened to me and justice is going to mean punishing someone else. And I think for actually for like more of us than we realize, like if we were just to ask ourselves, like, what, what do you want to happen out of this? Like, what do you want to occur? And if the answer is like, I don't want them to do that again. Going to prison isn't going to guarantee that at all. Or if the answer is like, I want them to know what they did was wrong. Like, there's other ways to to get there. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's like, just like you were mentioning, it's really hard to... Even when you're talking to people that you're really close to, maybe it's harder to talk to people that you're close to. Do you have any... Has this happened to you anytime recently? Like... Oh, yeah. Well, what I was just going to say was that, yeah, I think family members are tricky and then also co-workers are tricky because you have to like, navigate that balance of alienating yourself in the workplace, but also like sticking true to your values and living them out in every aspect of your life. I just hope that like for myself, I can think of more concrete ways to get over that fear that you feel or that that like anxiety that you feel right before you're about to say something you know yeah so do you feel like accountability is a negative thing um no no I I don't think it is and like it shouldn't be so uncomfortable for me to bring something like that up I just think well we were talking earlier like there's a difference between accountability and call-out culture and I think call-out culture is negative but I don't think that's what that doesn't fall in my definition of accountability like I think that falls under more the realm of punishment yeah no I agree that's call out culture is what I was thinking about in earlier when I was like 
the toxic cousin because like it stops being accountability and i also feel like like accountability like there's like there's different tactics for different situations right so so it's like you if you're gonna be on this trip with this person for like another week like yeah maybe you wait until the end of the week or like a a week later or a month whatever the time you need so that you don't feel like you're putting yourself in like somewhere where you're going to be further harmed you know so like that makes sense or like with my like with my friend about the hairdresser like I wasn't gonna like call her like oh you're complicit in transphobia like I don't feel like that would have been helpful, you know, but at the same time, like if I was to meet like someone wearing a KKK armband on the street, like I'm not going to try to be like, hey, like, you know, who are your idols? Like, let's talk about maybe like why they would view this negatively. Like, No, that's not the that's not the tactic. So I think part of it is just like we have to be like creative and flexible with our accountability, but also be mindful of ourselves and like, are we in a place of safety? Yeah, I, I think. Oh, wait, like a way to unify all these ideas is by thinking about accountability as being linked to healing and like like you said like there's going to be some situations where holding someone accountable might put you in a situation of violence and then at that point like it's up to you whether or not you're ready to confront that but given that the main goal is healing it's totally okay if you're a person of color especially if you're a black person to be like no I don't want to do that but I think that people with more privilege should be more willing to put themselves in confrontational situations. So, yeah, I don't want any white listeners to think that we're saying that they can back down from confrontational situations. Yeah. So actually, I think like this conversation is really timely but because of like the I just um, found the account. Yes, you're a racist on Twitter. And um, I think they're also on Instagram. We'll, we'll link to them in case you haven't seen their account. What do you think about the account, Yes, You're a Racist? Is it accountability or is it call-out culture? I think it's accountability for sure. I Yeah, I guess it's important to distinguish that when I talk negatively about call-out culture, I'm mostly talking about people of color doing that to other people of color. And the reason why I think that's problematic is because, like... If it's a person of color, you don't know if they've had the resources or time to do the research on why hegemony is a concept. But with an account like "Yes, You're Racist," I I'm trying to differ. I'm trying to figure out how I can distinguish that from punishment because it feels right to me. It feels needed because the account is making sure like well I don't know if we've explained the account but it's just an account where they post pictures of they've been posting pictures of the white supremacists at the Charlottesville rally and they post just like other racists that have become public and post their images and say like help me find this person or like they themselves track down their identity and then make their first and last name known and and like kind of in the hope of employers holding them accountable or like family members and i like that feels right to me because in this society you can it's very easy to get away with being a white supremacist and so it just feels right to me but i don't know i don't know how do i know that you like the account but like can you think of why yeah so i definitely see it as major accountability like it's on the very strong end of accountability 
And I think it's important because it's not letting these folks be invisible. They are, they get away with it and they're everywhere, you know? And this has results. Like we've seen the parents of one of the white supremacists like disown him in like a public letter. We saw that person that works at Top Dog, like he's been let go from Top Dog. So it has results. But in my head, I also liken it every now and then, like when to some men in my life, like I've talked about this with my dad and like some other men where I'll tell them like, you know, you've no men who've committed assault on a woman or some like sexual violence on a woman. And they'll always be like, no, none of my friends, none of the like the men in my like that I'm friends with. And I'm like, if so many women are being assaulted like sure there are repeat offenders but i guarantee you you know someone who's committed some sort of violence but they don't they get to like keep being that nice guy right they keep Mm -hmm. they get to keep that persona because people don't talk about it and so i see it as like kind of like pulling back that veil of sure like you're just this employee at top dog but on your spare time you go to white supremacist rallies And it's just like letting us like know who we're around and like keeping us safe, you know? So that's in my head kind of like how, how like I, I just like, that's how I think about it. That's in the framework. Also BT dubs y'all, I'm going to post the link to their Patreon account in case you want to support their labor. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I, I really do appreciate the account. Yes, you're racist. I think it's so important. And I also think like building off of that i think we also need to be more comfortable talking about the more subtle kinds of racism that exist in this world because like yes your racist points out the white supremacists with tiki torches in charlottesville but i also want to be able to talk about things like when my white classmate was evaluated was giving me a peer evaluation and said blatantly said you oh you could have done better because you didn't incorporate this and this into your oral argument when i had literally done that i had done that exact thing they just didn't i guess didn't hear didn't see me weren't paying attention and like this is like a white liberal who like thinks she's great i want to be able to talk about that like that kind of racism too and i hope that in this time where we're talking about KK, you know, like neo-Nazi rallies and fascist rallies that like, we also don't forget about the everyday stuff that we deal with too. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, but I think all y'all like white liberals moving to San Francisco and Los Angeles and like Brooklyn, New York, like y'all need to go home to Indiana, Ohio, <laughs> Texas and like have that conversation with your racist grandma. Go home. <laughs> um, Anything think- else you want to add before we close out? Oh, should we talk about how we hold ourselves accountable or? Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think like one thing, I think I try different tactics, but one tactic that I'm going to start implementing more is when I am a customer somewhere, like at a restaurant, especially in LA, if it's, I want to ask like, who's the owner, especially if it's like, I'm going to buy elotes or paletas. I want to ask who's the owner because there's so many like white hipsters who are like selling this and like making this huge profit when like street vendors are being deported or like having their carts thrown over so like that's one way like i want to be more responsible with my money like i want to make sure that when i see like a people of color dominant like major movie i go to the movie theater and i watch it like i just want to be real mindful about how i am spending my disposable income and just like have that take that second to be like who owns this especially like coffee shops when they're in like specific neighborhoods like i do like coffee shops because i do always have to do a lot of writing 
but I don't want to visit somewhere where it's like wide owned displacing other people. And I, I think that's one way to hold myself more accountable. For sure. And like in that same vein, I just, I like surrounding myself with people who have politics similar to mine, values similar to mine so that they help me grow. You, yeah, you're putting your dollars where you're in a way that aligns with your politics. And I also want to make sure that I'm doing that in my everyday. So being around people who have the same politics that I do helps me do that. And then also just challenging myself to have these conversations more because like I do believe it or not I am uncomfortable with with confrontation in certain situations and like I don't know like recently my friend blew up at me in a way that was really toxic and counterproductive and just made me feel like inferior and before I would have just ghosted on this friend I would have been like okay we're not friends anymore (laughs) but like I took the time to explain why what she did was toxic and I want to do more stuff like that I want to challenge myself more okay so for this segment of our cases we're going to be talking about Korematsu of the United States and we're just gonna give you the background we're gonna set the background Yvette what year are we in we're in 1944, and this occurred in San Leandro, California, which is actually in the East Bay, so pretty close to us. Yeah, and the Roosevelt administration has just passed Executive Order 9066, which gave permission for every possible protections against espionage and against sabotage. So we are, well, nine, this was a couple years before 1944 that the executive order came down so this is world war ii right we're in a conflict with japan and so following this executive order on like the there was a civilian exclusion order issued by the military command of like the western united states that said that after may 9th 1942 all persons of japanese ancestry should be excluded from the west coast and it gave them specific orders on how to go ahead and like leave the west coast so then that comes down and then we have fred koromatsu yvette do you want to tell us who he was yeah so he was an american-born citizen um his parents were from japan and he was born like i said earlier in san leandro california and he was suing the doj the department of justice well, actually, the DOJ was, like, trying to get him convict, like, reaffirm, his conviction affirmed, right? Like, was this a criminal case? Uh, how, yeah, how did this case come to be, actually? Well, because, so, he was convicted, so he violated the order. He didn't leave his yeah. home in San Leandro. Yeah, yeah. So then, he was prosecuted in, in the federal, he, so he was convicted by the federal trial court in the West Coast, and then the Court of Appeals affirmed that decision, so I think maybe the Supreme Court was also like affirming his conviction, but it was less like the conviction had, they didn't have to, the question they were answering wasn't like, could he be convicted? The question they were answering was like, was this, this executive order, was this legal or like, was it beyond the powers of the president and Congress to implement the exclusion of the rights of Americans of Japanese descent? So we'll confirm post podcast, whether this was a criminal or a civil case, but it was like Korematsu was convicted and the Supreme Court affirmed his conviction. 
should we just i know you just sort of summarized what the issue was but do you want to spell it out a little more clearly in case people are confused so (laughs) to put this in a sentence did the president and congress go beyond their war powers so outlined in the constitution the war powers by implementing exclusion and restricting the rights of americans of japanese descent what did the court decide so they held that the need to protect the u.s during this time of potential espionage was more important than korematsu and the people of japanese descent's individual liberty rights and so basically compulsory exclusion like existed in in san leandro was okay during the circumstances because uh it was world war ii and uh it was a time of emergency and danger so during a time like that then a further infringement on personal rights is thought to be okay by the supreme court yeah and just to go off my earlier point that the west coast sometimes is no better than the south um (laughs) the states of california oregon and washington in like 1943 when we're fighting nazis filed a brief in support of the executive order and like the exclusion of japanese americans they didn't have to they like they volunteered this brief in support of this act like these states washington california oregon so you bet what case law came from this this case yeah just what we were mentioning earlier but then also what's important that came out of this case was that the this case created what is now called strict scrutiny so in analyzing cases of discrimination there's different tiers of scrutiny and what that means is like from the outset a court is going to analyze a law with more intensity or less intensity depending on what the level of scrutiny is and race like laws that target certain races supposedly are the most suspect. So that means that a court is going to look at them with the highest amount of suspicion. And it's called strict scrutiny. And it was this case that held that for laws that that discriminate against or that target a particular race those laws are going to be looked at most harshly. Um, And I just think it's really ironic because the decision of the case was that it was okay to to arbitrarily exclude, well, I guess the court argued that it wasn't arbitrary, but to exclude all people of Japanese ancestry, even American citizens, just because the solicitor general and the military said had vague reasons why they thought that this was important yeah like this case is such a prime example of why like you cannot trust what people say like you have to trust what they do because the court literally says it should be noted to begin with that all legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect but it's like you're just throwing us a bone like if something is suspect, right, because it curtails civil rights, then like by that logic, shouldn't something that completely erase, erases someone's civil rights 
be unconstitutional like if something that curtails rights is suspect so what about something that erases it like shouldn't it just be unconstitutional and yeah like literally this case is why i have trust issues i know and yeah and like just like you said like this is this reminds me of like what you're saying earlier about how we shouldn't be fooled because donald trump made nice remarks after like three days after the fact because saying one thing and doing another and the Korematsu decision I think is a perfect example of that do you want to go into a little bit more about the court's reasoning and like what they pointed to to come to this conclusion yeah so we've mentioned a little bit about this before but almost like all of our law in this country is a lot of it is by statute by stuff that congress passes but a lot of it is just case law and what that means is like courts will make a decision and the next time they face some, a similar question, they'll go back to their previous decision and, and go off that. And so the court literally did that here. So before the Exclusion Act, there was a law like saying folks of Japanese descent had to have a curfew. So they had to be indoors from like 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. And they, they couldn't be outdoors. So they had a curfew. And so some like there was a case on that. And the Supreme Court found that it was fine. That curfew was, like was warranted by what was going on. And, like, the fear of, like, espionage and sabotage. And then, so, when they they got this case, like, the court's like, oh, well, sure, like, this is a little bit more extreme. But, you know, in our last case, like, we found that okay. And we found these laws okay. So, by our logic then, like, then this is okay, too. I just, I find that funny because it's like, we were fucked up before. Why can't we be fucked up now? (laughs) Yeah. And also... Yvette, do you want to talk? People trust our government so much, but can you tell us, remind us again, why we shouldn't always trust our government? Oh, yeah. Okay, so in this case, and actually, um, this this case is actually very, very relevant. It's very timely because a lot of the arguments that were made in this case had, there were parallel arguments in the travel ban cases. So in in instances like this, in both in like the Korematsu case and the Travelman case, where what is that issue is a quote unquote a national security issue, courts are very deferential to what the military says because, or like what intelligence agencies have to say because they're really scared that if they make a wrong ruling and then there ends up being a bombing or a war or like some other negative consequence, they don't want to be on the hook for that. And also, they just like generally don't have military training and so they feel like oh we're a little bit out of our league and so we can't deal with this and so in Korematsu they noted that well like the military and the solicitor general have both told us that in order to protect our national security we need to have this exclusion order put in place and the reason why this is really really shady is that the solicitor general received a report that debunked all of the data points that they used like they had this data about how like x percentage of japanese americans can't be trusted and they're probably spies and then the solicitor general had this report placed in front of him and was told like oh actually it's not really true and like for this reason and this reason and this reason and he just ignored it and didn't share it with the court and so the court deferred and said, okay, we believe you. And I think it's important to bring it up also because the Neil, I forget his last name, the Solicitor General under Obama made a statement about this and was like, you know, this is why the Solicitor General's office needs to do better. But what I felt was, and he, he made a statement, you all can look it up on the DOJ website. He made a statement saying that 
he regretted what the past solicitor general had done that it was like a bruise on the history of the solicitor general but i noticed that in the on the website he never said and this is why we should never classify people based on race or this is why we should never make laws that have at their core racist stereotypes like that that wasn't what he said and and like I think it's also telling that he didn't say that and then six years later we had the travel ban yeah and just as more context the other reason that we know this that we know the government withheld information from the supreme court was because there was a case later where reversing Korematsu's conviction and in that case they found that the U.S. DOJ had withheld and mischaracterized the evidence that Yvette's talking about and and it's just they like their whole case was just based off military necessity so they needed to prove that somehow and so they just like withheld evidence and I just like this keeps blowing my mind because this was in the Roosevelt administration like what do we expect today yeah right because yeah Roosevelt is thought of as a great liberal president. Yeah, so that, I think that just gives us something to think about in terms of government accountability. But I also wanted to go back to what something we mentioned earlier about how part of the court's reasoning behind this was that this was squarely within the war powers of the president and the Congress. Because that has never been overturned. The, you know, like Fred Korematsu's conviction was overturned, but that principle that excluding a whole race of people during wartime has not been deemed to be unconstitutional. It's like squarely within the war powers of the president to do that. And thinking about who our president is now, that's a really, really terrifying thought. Yeah. And again, because like, uh, yeah, it is, it is scary. And I just feel like I can, this case, this majority opinion has language that I feel like they could just pluck right out, right? Being like, oh, this, like, we can never justify restrictions on the civil rights of a single racial, like, group because of racial antagonism. But if it's public necessity, then I guess it's okay. And, like, also this case, the majority just, like, they're blinding themselves so much to what they're doing. They refuse to see the assembly centers where, you know, if you, you had to show up to be, like, relocated as concentration camps which we now like see we call them internment camps and the they like the judge is so salty about it he's like i refuse to like think of these like as concentration camps because of everything that word the imagery it brings up because it's like world war ii and whatnot but it that's what it was you know and it just also reminds me like literally you can like you can use the law to justify anything Mm -hmm. like how is like the country that's supposed to like be the most freedom loving like justifying like just using its constitution its founding document to um, make this legitimate to make this a legitimate practice and then last thing i'm sorry and then we can like talk about the dissent because it's like somewhat better um well it's better but (laughs) another thing that really bothered me was that if you read this whole like the majority opinion you're just seeing the petitioner the petitioner the petitioner and that's referring to goromatsu and, like, you you get to the final, like, last two paragraphs, and there they say Korematsu. And it just made me think how often, like, judges and other, like, prosecutors and other folks in the justice system have to, like, dehumanize the person they're talking about. I see this all the time in criminal cases where they won't refer to the defendant by their name. They'll always just be like, the defendant, the defendant, the defendant. It's like, no, say their name. 
this is a person you're doing this to like this is a person's life you're impacting don't hide behind the petitioner it's like some abstract person I also want to note that these decisions, like you might be thinking, oh, Cynthia's reading too much into this or like Cynthia is ascribing intentions that weren't in the judge's minds. But th- like the, these decisions of to say petitioner instead of saying Korematsu are intentional because when you're writing, your, both when you're making an argument and when you're writing a decision as a judge, you're crafting a narrative. And like as lawyers, you're trying you're trying to convince a judge that your narrative is right. And I think like if you all want to look at the language of the majority opinion versus the dissenting opinion, you can see how it's really apparent that that's what was going on because like Cynthia said in the majority opinion, they said petitioner, 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 and rarely mentioned Korematsu's name. Whereas in one of the dissents, the first sentence is Fred Korematsu was born on U.S. soil and is an American citizen, right? Like that the first sentence was dedicated to humanizing him in a way that the majority opinion had not. So I guess I've led us into talking about the dissent. (laughs) Yeah, so three judges dissent from this, Jackson, Roberts, and Murphy. And Yvette, like, when you mentioned that first line, the first thing that it always just, that brings me back to this question I'm constantly asking myself, which is like, what makes me a United Statesian? that I was born here? Like, clearly not, because Korematsu was born here. Even if I, even though, like, I do reject the founding fathers, even if I didn't, could I still claim them as mine? Like, I I don't feel like I could. And this case just really convinces me that I'm not really, like, a statesian. Like, in the collective consciousness of this country, you know, Korematsu's liberties could be taken away because in order to keep, like, the real United, like, Americans safe, you know? And I feel that about myself. My rights would be taken away for the, you know, for the convenience of European, I'm saying this with air quotes, European Americans. And you hear this in the rhetoric of the, like, the white nationalists in Virginia who are just like, they're trying to reclaim their country. And it's just like all these reminders that this country's not mine. And, you know, in some ways, like, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want its history. I'm going to be held accountable to its history because I'm going to try to not be a capitalist or an imperialist or colonialist. But you know what? If you don't want to claim me, fine. Like, I won't claim you either. Oh, just really quickly, I want to say that Cynthia saying United States and not American to recognize that the U.S. is not the only country within the Americas. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I think I've seen a lot on social media um, where, like, a person of color is pointing out an injustice within the U.S., a frequent response is, go back to your country, or, like, if you don't like it here, then you should leave. And I feel like those comments are really tone deaf and don't realize how difficult it is to live in the U.S. as a person of color. What I find so sad about the Korematsu case is if you read about the background of his life, he loved the U.S. He loved living in San Leandro. He wanted nothing more than to be American. And that was why he violated the curfew because he was like, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a traitor. I'm not a spy. And and like that's, I think that's like similar kind, you know, and like, but but he was still excluded. And I I think that people don't realize how hurtful that is and just how difficult it is to reconcile the fact that you've lived in a geographic space and have created memories within it but are also 
constantly excluded from the imaginary of it. Yeah, I... So my cousin, who my two cousins who are like my sisters, I'm constantly talking about them. They, we all grew up in LA together. They went to the mall in the San, San Gabriel Valley and literally like they were told by some white ladies. No, they weren't even white. I think they looked like, I forgot what they said, but they were, I don't know. I think they were like white, but I don't know what it was. But they like literally told my cousins like, go back to your country. And like in, in LA, in the San Gabriel Valley, so yeah that is so real that language is really real i think uh going back to the dissenting opinions jackson's dissent is the one that's like upheld the most it's like the more like the stronger language and so i just wanted to talk about it briefly too i do like that jackson starts off talking about pointing out that like like he makes a comparison to like german and italian spies and so that's like more like i'm giving him more credit than he deserves but i like i like that he's calling to light like we're not putting german descendants or italian descended people in in these internment camps right but we're at war and it's like a different context but just the fact that he mentions like germans and italians i feel like is trying to point out to folks hey we're not at war only with the japanese just fyi so i i appreciated that part of his opinion and yeah, and I think Jackson's language was good, but I did also appreciate something in Robert's dissenting opinion, which was that he said, he pointed out that in our legal system, guilt is supposed to be personal and not inheritable. So he pointed out that like, even if your father, or your mother was a traitor to the US, that shouldn't mean that you as their child will be held accountable for their actions because guilt is individual if you as an individual do something then you'll be held guilty but otherwise you can't inherit someone else's guilt and i thought that was dope because that is like this is exactly inherited guilt of just like because of how you're read you're subjected to different treatment or because of your ancestry you're subjected to different treatment and i totally agree with him that in this instance like guilt was inheritable and not personal which is supposedly in conflict with the principles of our criminal legal system Yvette do you want to mention what happens years later I think we mentioned it earlier but just more explicitly oh yes so Fred Korematsu filed a writ of quorum nobis I don't know if that's how you pronounce it but uh, it's essentially a petition to have the court recognize that a previous decision was incorrect and the court did rule in his favor because largely of what we were mentioning earlier, the the new facts that came out about the Solicitor General and the military presenting doctor data or like not withholding all the information or withholding information from the judge. So that's a happy note to end on. Yeah. Oh, well, I also want to mention this like fun fact. I don't know how fun it is, but so Korematsu's daughter, he like never talked about this. And so his daughter, Karen, had never heard of like Japanese internment until one of her friends was giving a book report in her high school class. I think it was either high school or college. I'm not sure. And like mentioned the case, Korematsu versus the United States. And she was just like, oh, that's my name. And then. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. And then she like went home and asked and he was like, oh, yeah, that's that's that was me. <laughs> that's insane. And also so humble. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot going on back there, but I just thought that's like an interesting fact. So yeah, that's our case for this week. Yvette, 
what are you recommending to folks this week? So I just read this novel called The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri, and it came out a while ago and I received praise a while ago, but I just recently came across it. And I enjoyed it because the character in the book goes to Yale for undergrad and that's where I went to undergrad and it was really fun because the author must have done her research or maybe went there because she like got all these really specific details from my college experience like embedded into the story so it's just like personally fun for me but then also the novel was like really beautifully written and was super on point to my life because it was a, it followed this man and his journey reconciling like, the shame that he had internalized as a child growing with immigrant parents growing up in the U.S. with also mm. his own his own genuine desire and attraction to American culture and American values and just kind of like navigating that tension and figuring out what of his parents' life he wants to incorporate and what of the life he's experienced in America that he wants to incorporate. Um, It's just like a classic child of immigrant story and it was really beautifully written and I felt like I related to it a lot. So I recommend that. I'm recommending Valeria Ruelas, aka on Instagram, Mestiza Magic. And so I just got my tarot cards read by her and two of my friends did it also and we all loved her. All of us like felt energized after speaking with her and like for all of us and like the different places that we are in life and like what we're experiencing, like her reading was so on point for each of us. I I just loved her. I loved, you know, how thoughtful thoughtful she was and I had never gotten my tarot cards read before because I don't, I didn't trust people. I was worried they would like steal my luck or something and so I trusted her and I did it and I'm so glad I did so I really recommend y'all reach out to her I will link to her on our Instagram or on our and on our website so y'all can find her so uh to wrap up we just wanted to say again like we really appreciate everybody's support and if you feel so inclined like we do you know do consider donating to us or supporting us on patreon and because Eva and I do have other ways that we can improve our co- podcast and like, and that involves money. But we also very much want to recommend folks with funds to donate, to consider supporting Afro-Latinx artists, Black artists, and like other endeavors by people of color. And so we have several suggestions for other patron accounts to support. And we'll, we'll link them in our blog in Cerebronas.com. Yay! That's our episode. Yeah, Yvette, lovely to catch up with you again. Mm-hmm. It's great catching up with you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Who it is, son? Let's go, my dogs go heat, control the whole street. And when it's time to bust, they don't.